can't say pregnancy on television. In honor of being the Ricardos, what's the biopic with the best setting? Uh, I'm Katie Rich and I'm going with Amadeus. You can't deny those crazy fucking wigs. Is that a setting? I'm Matt Patches. <laughs> the I'm setting includes with, uh, the wigs. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I'm going to go with one of my favorite films, the Bethany Hamilton biopic Soul Surfer, uh, which <laughs> takes place in Kauai, Hawaii. I mean, besides the shark infested waters that could chomp your arm off, it's, uh, it seems beautiful. Sure does. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to say the uh, like mid 20th century world of being a con man pretending to be a Pan Am pilot from Catch Me If You Can. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich, and I will take the bait, as I always do, to talk about Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, uh, because what better place for a biopic to be set than in the Golden Pavilion or the reconstruction of it that Paul Schrader and, uh, made for that movie. Very cool. Very gold. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 374.75. Oh, boy. Uh, it's pandemic 90. <laughs> it's the week of Wednesday, December 8th. That's the day that in 1978, The Deer Hunter, directed by Michael Cimino, was released. Dave wrote it as Martin Chimino, and I corrected him, and now I'm calling him out and make myself smart. It's also episode one, post being named one of the 10 best podcasts of 2021. That's right. Wow. Pop the show. A new era. I was going to, like, very, like, (laughs) humbly, like, share this and being like, if you're joining us now from Time Magazine, thank you. But David just jumped on it. Um, Yeah. Let's (laughs) celebrate. I mean, the review. Uh, I mean, this is the, this is the part we, of the show. Do we have reviews? Yeah, does that, does that yes, count we do. The blurb? Um, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, as much as I, I would love to imagine that it was like a very serious committee in a smoke-filled room. Oh, definitely. Gathering to debate all seven zillion podcasts and slowly narrowing it down bracket style until we were in the top ten. Uh, I know, as we all do on this podcast, the reality of writing on the internet, it came down to one very smart, very knowledgeable, very articulate writer. This person was tasked uh, with uh, naming the best podcast. A a person of consummate taste and uh, expertise. I'm sure. Yes. The best part about she listened to them all. She had to in order to pick ours. It's possible that new people might be listening to this show this week after this announcement. And we have in no way established what the show is. I can't remember the last time in the last five to seven years when we've made it clear what fighting in the war room is at the top of the show. If you're a new listener, why you, what you're, you should be in for here. I don't, I, we don't, we also need to to reiterate though, to our pre-existing listeners who have no idea what we're talking about and wouldn't (laughs) believe us, uh, unless we we took a minute to clarify. Catering to no one. (laughs) Somehow, uh, our, our humble podcast, which has never, never made a red cent in advertising, which I think probably makes us the number one podcast in the world mm-hmm. of the year to not take money from advertisers. Most, uh, I'm just uh, guessing most with the other nine podcasts on that list sold out too. podcast. Fuck the man. Yeah, hacks. <laughs> um, was named by Time Magazine one of the 10 best podcasts of 2021. Trust us, we were as surprised as you might be to hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very nice. The first, and I, I suppose probably last honor this podcast will ever what? receive, other than the honor of being listened to by all you out there. Well, are you going to read the blurb, David? Do we have a review? The is it from Time Magazine? Blurb, I think it's that, not like, that long. The whole blurb is that shorter might... than most of our 
uh, Apple review. No, I, I, I think that, you know, we read, we read at the start of every episode, we read the reviews that we get on iTunes under threat of, in the event that we don't have any new episodes, talking for five minutes about Star Wars Galaxy. Incredible that in a year where we talk extensively about a Lucasfilm mobile <laughs> app game at length <laughs> over and over and over again about Star Wars Esoteria, that is the, that is the year that we win an accolade or, from Time Magazine. This threat is the magic sauce as true. far as we know. This is the only thing we've been doing that. right? Yeah. Finally, we're um, getting in the weeds on what people could do yeah, on their phones. But uh, we, we, read, we read the reviews we get at the top of the episode. Uh, read them live on the show. It's great fun for all, except for the people who have made it known that they skip right over that segment. And God love you. But uh, I think reading the blurb from Time Magazine would probably be on the other side of the, of wow. the, the river in terms wow. of... Uh, content and just you know i don't know it's like hanging up in the pizza up, place but, of this uh of this well, podcast yeah it's but a headshot like, of the website, rock which in our metaphorical pizza do. place <laughs> yeah i mean it's out there you should google it uh and yeah, i'm sure give there them are traffic. other that's good that's a good idea. decent podcasts on that list certainly none at this professional level um that delivers this kind of consistent quality for more than 10 years now mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh but after 10 years we finally made a top 10 list and that's very nice um, 10 years asterisk 11 years which we uh managed to forget our own 10 year anniversary because the yeah. pandemic is it really 11 yeah. years though i've been thinking more about this than how we we're scrutinizing <laughs> the dates i mean the first year was not a complete year no but like this period like december 2010 is when the podcast started it is definitely uh, december 2021 right, now maybe that's we honor years. the first full year <laughs> so it actually is the 10th anniversary well, of the full it's a, year. It's a great, great, great first episode for people. <laughs> it could also be maybe only like the seventh or eighth year of fighting in the war room proper. So That's we watch true. a lot of movies. We don't oh, yeah. count so well. No, no. We're dulled down. <laughs> anyway, we talk about we talk about pop culture on this podcast. Some podcasts you may have heard of have two friends. Well, we doubled it. We have four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's twice the podcast power. Um and half the wit. Anyway, we are fighting in the war room. Movies and pop culture podcast. That's what it says in the title. And this is our show. We're gonna talk about some shit. Hey, David, do uh, we have but- any reviews this week? Yeah, Katie, I'm so glad you asked because we do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in addition yeah. to the the review, if you can call it that in Time Magazine, we have two quick reviews. One from Christina Witzel, who says everything Katie Rich does is a plus. What a segue. That's right, Christina Witzel. Um, and the fellas are pretty all right too. She says. But I'm dying to know, should I be playing Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes? What has been going on in that game's story lately? I'll yield the rest of my time. Is there a story? Thank you so much, Christina Witzel. Dave, yeah. uh, can you explain very, very briefly, because we did get reviews this oh, week, no. the function or lack thereof of a story in Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes? Yeah, there's not a story. Uh, you are collecting characters that you like from other stories. So as much as you're involved with the story with Star Wars, you're already involved with the story of Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. So yeah, basically, so Chewbacca... Not forget that the game... Chewbacca's like a Pokemon. Chewbacca's yeah. a Pokemon. He only says the word Chewbacca. And the Chewbacca! game takes place on the hollow tables. So really, if you take a Wait, step is that, back... Is that true? Like, Yes. Yeah. yeah. All the characters are holograms, and they die. They just like hollow wow, away. First what? And yeah. Yeah. So it isn't You're as if they are the real characters. You're not supposed to be able to talk about Star Wars Galaxy Heroes right now. <laughs> anyway, I'm just clarifying this. Christina Witzel and perhaps other viewers would like to know, or listeners rather. I make that mistake every week. In case you're new. Top ten okay, podcasts awful in Time says, Magazine. <laughs> review review left on Blanky's Reddit. I've never heard of Blanky's or 
read it, but um, <laughs> okay. I'll, let's. Uh, all right. So I think I'm made to understand that on uh, a Reddit of some podcast called Blankies, there uh, somebody left a review for our show, hoping that I would see it, which is bizarre. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what they're talking about. I did see it, and someone posted that review on full here. Not the person who posted it on Reddit, but someone else was sort of passing the message along. So here it is. Hello. I'm from Ireland, not me, the poster on the Reddit. Clarifying. I, I do understand. Uh, thank you. And I've been listening to the show since 2017. I've tried to leave a review of the show a few times now, but iTunes region locks reviews. So presumably you can't see reviews from outside the United States. I've tried using a DNS, creating a US Apple account, but none <laughs> of it has worked. I really, we really We need to find a new system. In 2022, yeah. I'm going to throw this out here. Leave reviews on fightingintheworm.com. Can I say this? Can I throw the gauntlet down? Who cares about Apple? Why are we supporting Apple podcasts? What if on the criticontimes.com, whatever the fuck that is, Time Magazine, an August American institution, would never have heard of our uh, podcast if not for it rising in the ranks in iTunes? I know. I am not leveraging this moment for us at all. I am steering it into the Go on iTunes. Well, we'll get to that part later. I'm still reading this review. As usual, discount whatever Patches is saying. I've posted this review on the Blank Check subreddit and asked someone to post it for me here. Maybe there could be an email where listeners could email in screenshots of their international reviews. You could check that when there are no new U.S. reviews rather than arguing about Star Wars legends appearing in Galaxy of Heroes. I have to say, strong. oh, so this is, again, the iTunes poster, not the Reddit poster, saying, I have to say, I strongly disagree with Keen here. Despite not caring about Star Wars or video games, this is the best part of the show that is not Katie Rich. Your mm, guest appearance. Wow. Cl- oh, and now, now addressing Katie Rich, your guest appearance on the collateral episode of Blank Check is severely underrated. Wow. Thanks, Keen. Uh, Keen, I suppose, the name of the Reddit user. P.S. I originally wanted to write a review because one of you referred to an Irish actor as British. But it was so long ago, I've forgotten which actor and which host. <laughs> well, that sounds like it's for the best. That, is that the um, review of something... Belfast? Sounds like something we would do. Uh, well, thank you both to Keen for, for writing that review and laboring to get it in front of us and uh, to OK Awful for finally making that possible. Um, we will consider setting up an email. I said we would consider it. We have just in the interim, there was a cut. You couldn't hear it. Uh, but hours were spent going back and forth, arguing about this. And now we have set up an email account. And uh, what is it, Patches? Wow, you got Great. really indignant, and then you couldn't follow through. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> um, I don't know. Dave, is that what the email is? Uh, I don't know. I was surprised when you said we had an email. Oh, crap. One of Time Magazine's <laughs> top 10 podcasts of the year, everyone. You can, uh, you can go on I, on Twitter, rather, and tag us at FITWR with a screenshot if you're not on the American iTunes. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the only decent reason I can think of to go on Twitter, but Otherwise, if you are in America, please leave us a review on iTunes. We will try to be better about checking the international stores. Uh, but thank you for somewhat sparing us more talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. And now we will actually get to the show. Guys, it's 
been so long since I've done this. I've out of practice for even introducing a segment. My goodness. Welcome to one of the 10 best podcasts of 2021. <laughs> how long now, have you been gone? Two weeks? Uh, Where were you? Been a, uh, there's been a lot going on. You Can know, we talk been, about how you toured New York? And I, I mean, maybe well, this is a hey, West Side no, we're gonna, Story related no, we're talking. We're talking about West Side Story later. So yeah, we'll okay, get there. Yes. I watched we'll Power to your of the Dog uh, alone in a Los Angeles screening room wow. two months ago. Um, which I don't, I'm not going to say is necessarily the right way you're supposed to see it, but I loved it. It's just unsurprising. I read the book. Um, I love Westerns as I'm sure I've talked about at various points. I'm fascinated by how the genre keeps evolving. Powerful dogs. I love powerful dogs. I'm always in awe of the power of them. Um, and calling power of the dog of Western is like may or may not be the most accurate thing. Like, you know, if you've seen the heart of they fall also on Netflix, it's not really anything like that movie, but it is in the language of the Western and has a lot of characters familiar to it you know more or less it has benedict cumberbatch is this really really mean rancher who is in the uh the vein of the john wayne heroes of the past but kind of put into this new context in this movie directed by jane campion adapted from the book by her um let's kind of get crass i feel like i've been talking about this movie non-stop like even before i i actually got to see it so i want to talk less uh and maybe hear from dave who's seen it more recently than i have wait just to finish that you said adapted from the novel by By jane campion sorry i meant to but not yeah not adapted by jane i mean it's not a novel by jane campion Campion adapted the novel by (laughs) thomas savage that was published in the late 60s i'm not trying to be pedantic i'm just trying to clarify that jane campion did not write the book on which this movie that's true that she made yes i trailed off before i clarified that um, I really love this movie. I think it is uh, powerful and uh, in a lot of ways that we'll get into. And I keep thinking about it. I haven't seen it since I saw it two months ago. So I feel like less fresh on it and clear on what I um, am so ecstatic about. But Dave, I know you saw it really recently. So I wanted to throw to you next. Well, I guess not really recently because it's on Netflix. What but is this I movie about? To- <laughs> uh, okay. A mean rancher. I said that. It's, a, it's about a mean rancher. Okay. Patches. <laughs> Has not seen Power of the I Dog. I have not seen I'm guessing because he made an allusion to it having anything to do with a dog, which I, I'm sorry, guys. There is a dog in the movie, but not key this, to It's the more plush. of a you're the man now dog. Yes, yeah. Dog. No, yes, they actually, definitely. They, they definitely, definitely say you're the man now dog multiple times. Mm-hmm. I think it's the last line of the movie, mm-hmm. actually. It's a big conclusion as to who the dog was. Good throwback. Or who the man was. <laughs> uh, no, it it's, uh, takes place in uh, a ranch... Uh, on a ranch in Montana that they shot in New Zealand for uh, Montana. Oh, and uh, I ben thought surprisingly convincingly, not that I've been to Montana, but it, it I mean, felt not right. just it's like sweet tooth. I mean, not only does it feel no reaction, right or I'm not, not wrong, but it's just, it's also like so, so beautiful that a part of me, you know, Monument Valley is great and all, but yeah, man, just shoot, go back and reshoot all those fucking movies in New Zealand. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty good, especially um, there's a lot of times where uh, in the movie, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch plays a grumpy rancher who is that running a successful ranch with his brother, uh, but they he sort of uh, is miserable and enjoys keeping his brother uh, miserable as well. So as, imagine, as a way of showing his love for his brother, he's mean to him. It's a way of showing his love. Uh, so imagine what happens when his brother... Uh, ups and gets married uh, to a widow um, played by Kirsten Dunst who brings along uh, her son uh, played by Cody Smith McPhee and now this rancher who uh, likes to uh, not bathe and sort of live by this old rancher's code that was taught to him uh, in his youth uh, has to contest with these people 
uh, and where he is sort of like uh, dirty and um, sort of of the land, of the land, let's say, um, his uh, brother and his brother's family um, have some aristocratic uh, leanings. They like have the governor over uh, for dinner. The young boy is definitely getting like a formal education. Uh, so it takes all of these things and pot boils them together. And I guess if I were to compare it to the Campion movie, it's the piano because the entire thing, even though it sounds uh, like maybe a, a drama, it has this tension to it where you don't know if we're like right on the cusp of very passionate sex or some horrible violence. Yeah. And I think it uh, walks that line very well. Yeah. And the question is, you know, passionate sex between whom and horrible violence, you know, by by and whether or not they else. are sort of one in the same, um, which I think uh, yeah. is something that is accomplished not through dialogue or like flashback or anything like that, but like a close up on a branch that like tells mm-hmm. you about the mental state. Like, because I, I read the book and it's so internal and it's in the in the mind of this character Phil who acts cruelly and in ways that seem inexplicable to the people around him, but when you're in his head in the book at all you kind of see the twisted logic that he's operating under, even as he is uh, hiding things from you, the reader and from himself, which becomes clear as the book goes on. And the way that the movie captures that through cinematography, basically, I mean, it's all of filmmaking, but just the way that the camera tells you about his inner state is really incredible. And why Jane Campion is who she is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the book is famous in certain canons, uh, even though it was sort of obscure until Annie Prue, who wrote Brokeback Mountain, um, I don't know if she like personally sort of rediscovered it, but she certainly helped its ascent and wrote the forward of the edition of the book that I read. Yeah. Um, and certainly if you go on Twitter, uh, people are happy to go into the specifics of what the movie is about and, and various websites, the one I work at included, have been have been uh, in, in, you know, in a hurry to do that. Um, do you feel like we need to avoid spoilers I, in this way? Yeah, what I'm trying to say is that I saw this movie uh, knowing absolutely nothing. Oh, interesting. And while I don't think that is by any stretch of the imagination essential to enjoying it or getting the most out of it, um, what we were talking about, the tension, the dynamic between sex and violence was um, even more taut, I think, because I was kind of finding my sea legs as it went along. I didn't really know even you know how I would categorize the movie. It was right at the start of the festival season um, and I was seeing you know four movies a day and it was just... Uh, um, you're going sort of getting thrown into it. And it is, as Katie said, just absolutely incredible as it unfolds. I think the one thing that you can say more broadly is that, you know, Jane Campion has always made films and always been drawn to characters who are often artists, but not always. And in here, uh, there is an, an artist-like character, I would say, um, who make sort of beautiful homes for themselves in the, the middle of these liminal spaces between different worlds and everyone around them sort of assumes they're lost, but they are really sort of looking for this place of belonging. And um, that I think is true of both or really all, I don't want to say both even because that narrows it down, but all the characters in the story uh, and the dynamics that unfold between them, I found very surprising and, and just so richly done. The performances are so immaculate that even after reading the book and watching the movie again, um, it, it it just feels so lived in and, and earned and sort of like a rawhide feeling to it. But I saw rawhide. I saw the movie like in August. I saw the movie in August and it, it blew me away. And I was like, this is clearly, you know, Jane Campion's back, baby. It's her first movie in 12 years, even though I loved both seasons, both seasons of Top of the Lake. This is her first <laughs> movie in 
12 years since uh, Bright Star. And, oh, man, Bright Star um, is such a wonderful movie. Yeah, but I mean, this this is just, you know, she came back at absolutely the peak of her powers. And then I saw a zillion other movies that are part of this fall corridor. And then I saw it again a couple of days ago. And I was just like every shot. I was like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> this is just so, so good. Um, and uh, it's it's a really, really, really special movie and i think the moment to see it on the big screen is kind of past already in a lot of places but yeah um, it is i mean i i am looking forward to watching it on netflix but it is such an absorbing movie and you know what i'm saying about like a cutaway shot of a like hand on a table like telling you about the the meaning of an entire scene like you don't want to miss stuff like that um and i feel like we do a lot of being like no you must turn off all the lights and sequester yourself in a bubble to watch this movie but this might be the one you really do have to do that for I mean, it's I sort of, it, it demands you, I, I would imagine that it would have a certain effect on you, no matter what circumstances under which you're watching it. I mean, Johnny Greenwood's score, um, which plunks along right from those opening shots, is so discordant that it, it kind of puts you on your tippy toes. I mean, it like, it, it does pull you in, even if you are only half watching initially. Um, and I, I don't think it's a difficult thing to be absorbed by the movie as a whole, but yeah, I mean, it creates just the, the tension that Katie was talking about. It, it just gets so, so tight, even once you understand what everyone sort of means to everyone else or think that you do. Uh, and the movie retains and and unpacks into this sort of like cinematic space the same coiled menace and also sort of uh, very like sudden revelations Mm -hmm. that don't feel like the they don't feel like they're coming out of nowhere i mean they they are they the rug is getting pulled out from under you but you feel as though in hindsight you can sort of feel the world slipping beneath your feet the entire time Mm -hmm. um it's so fucking good oh my god that's really good (laughs) yeah and i think it's anchored by you know amazing performances all around even jesse plemons who sort of has to fade into the background and who is playing a subtle character to begin with I think really like lines it up, but uh, Cody Smith-McPhee and Benedict Cumberbatch uh, do, I think as David alluded to, an amazing amount of character work, considering, as Katie says, the book is entirely from the perspective of the Benedict Cumberbatch character. Yeah. Uh, Both of them come out um, feeling like uh, like they want to be judged as dangerous or vulnerable and then you have to question whether or not that's accurate or i think a facade throughout the the uh, entire film it's really lot, it's really great yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of people on the internet these days like to talk about toxic masculinity but this movie uh <laughs> this is one that they really sort of leans into it uh and and explores it and turns it inside out um and sort of uh, uses expectations against you in interesting ways uh, and every shot is just so painterly, but never overly composed, never airless in a way that that makes you feel like it's suffocating the emotions. Well, the until it's supposed to. At some point, the telephoto lens against the hills make the hills sort of like bend over the house. Well, and you're like yeah. genius. Uh, yeah, there there is a sense of the world closing in around the characters, and uh, vis-a-vis the title, the hills, the hills. Uh, they don't barking. have eyes. They have fur. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just it, it's it's a real and Benedict Cumberbatch is who's an actor I've always struggled with. I found him, you know, a bit 
you know, I thought he worked really well in Atonement as this sinister lizard-like character. Found him a bit too snarky to, and really all of Sherlock wasn't really my speed, but in um, Doctor Strange and a lot of movies like that. And he also has this like biopic mode where, like in the very recent The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. He's not where bad in that movie. That movie's he's not, not bad. I mean, he's never, terrible. He's never bad. Uh, he's a, clearly a talented actor. I just don't know. I, I, I don't know if uh, he sometimes... I don't know how to characterize it because he's not being la- he's not being lazy with those roles. He's not taking the easy way out. I mean, he's putting um, I, I feel like a ton of work into even the movies that feel really down the middle. But um, there is a mode that he settles into that I I don't find particularly engaging. And you know maybe it's sort of like the Daniel Plainview edge to hmm. what he's doing here, combined with a couple of other characters I can name. But it, it is absolutely riveting. From the moment the film begins, he did with very good reason just win the New York Film Critics Circle, of which I'm a member, uh, Best Actor of the Year Award. Um, yeah. Could not be more deserved. Uh, and Cody, Cody McPhee won our Best Supporting Actor. So a lot of acting in this movie. Jesse Plemons, as Dave said, like playing a very recessive role, but has, and by design, I mean, like he nails it perfectly, yeah. but has this one moment where he is just he just drapes a like a restaurant napkin over his arm to shift yeah. into like acting as a waiter and it just broke my heart. I mean it's like a very little gesture. Um similar to what Katie was talking about about so much of the emotion of this movie being communicated through nature and and movements and whatnot that uh man it's just it's every moment of this movie is just so sharp and and poignant and on point and uh huh. Real, real, real good. Uh, good yeah, that, I mean, that's part of what I love about Westerns. And this is true of the piano, too. It's not just Westerns, but it's like such a stark world for these people to live in. So all gestures of vulnerability or menace or everything is kind of heightened by the fact that there's so little around them. So you see someone making the choice to do one nice gesture for another character and how it like blows up the entire society around them. The, they, it can make the stakes so high. And I think this movie plays with that and the way it's into traditional Western and how it's kind of... Um, you know, tweet here. Um, like I said at the beginning, in that character, Phil, who was so much the typical Western hero. And then um, you see how toxic it is in a, <laughs> without being too, uh, you know, pedantic about it. Yeah, Bronco Henry, man. Cast a long shadow. Uh, yeah, The Power of the Dog on Netflix now. Uh, it's still playing as, as the, uh, the date that we were recording this. It is still playing in some theaters. I don't know if that's true nationwide off the top of my head. It's definitely true in New York. but. Um, if you can catch it on the big screen safely, I highly recommend that you do so. If not, it should still retain its power on your television. Oh, that dog. Patches, you're going to see it soon, right? I, I got to see all the movies. I, there's so <laughs> many movies, man. I got to see them all. movie stars who are they what do they want uh where can you find them no the i mean not to to talk too much about the new york film critic circle but another uh 
another award we gave was for best actress to Lady Gaga for the House of Gucci for uh, playing Patrizia. It's time to take out the trash, Regioni. Um, and uh, I was this an award you know, for the it, most acting, David? Well, the some best some act. might. There was much, some much of it to be had. Uh, Asked that online. Um, it is definitely a different stripe of performance than some of the others that critics groups would award, and I think we'll continue to award this fall. Um, it is a bona fide and brassy movie star performance in an age where those, but also movie stars themselves, are uh, certainly on the decline. Um, and I just wanted to take this mini segment just to kick around the idea that, uh, you know, it, it, someone like Lady Gaga is making room for those kind of performances. This is what they don't really see anymore, um, that are unrepentantly, not just big in terms of their, you know, the operatic scale, which she delivers every line, but just, uh, so full i mean and rich in texture and owning the movie i mean i think one of the things that people responded to about her performance at least the people in that critics group are just that uh she is whether you think it's over the top or the movie doesn't work whatever the case might be i mean i could not think of a, a performance this year um that is more commanding of your attention but what's weird is do you think this is you know after star is born i wasn't quite sure what lady gaga would be able to do next if it was going to be so kind of singular from her like that this was the one movie she could do this is the one movie that she would be perfect at um and i'm glad it's not because i think as a as a pop performer she's really dimensional and has shown so much range from like tony bennett to super pop and and just like and and the world building of her fantasy stuff it's she's a dimensional pop star and i'm really glad that gucci took her it seems like in a totally different direction i don't know if you see a connection between stars born and and gucci but i would say maybe gucci is more of the ryan murphy lessons is are you are you possibly applauding the ryan murphyism of more mainstream big movies is is, gucci feels like ryan murphy if ryan murphy had invented (laughs) facebook he would have invented facebook all right if she had given this performance in a ryan murphy show she would have given it in a right. But isn't she show. giving she a performance that's it. like People versus OJ? Well, in she this? wasn't in the People versus in OJ. This? She was yeah. in the she was in the American Horror Story where she did not give a performance like this. Um, so she wasn't given the runway people there. People versus OJ had anything quite on this level in terms because no. people versus I mean, it, it was so really? like about like emerging into a real person as opposed to, like we don't know none of us know anything you don't think about Travolta. I mean, Sarah, about Sarah Paulson kind of, like, and, and of every single scene that you're in. I mean, there are good performances in the show, but the, uh, the, yeah, I mean, there is an element of camp to this movie and to her performance. I have argued, I think I've argued on the show that one of the things the movie does so interestingly is it's sort of in conversation with its own level of campiness, um, that it's sort of about how I didn't take the idea that all the actors are sort of coming at it at a different level and seem to be in different movies as a negative. Uh, I found it a really interesting parallel to the idea of the, battle over the future of the Gucci brand, if it was going to be more high-end or if it was going to be, um, you know, in malls. And uh, I thought that the, the sort of acting styles complemented that really nicely. But she comes in and grabs the movie and the Gucci brand and family by extension by the throat. And I think that it's the kind of thing that required, a, you know, Liz Taylor-like movie star uh, bravura to make possible. And I think that, like, you know, we need to 
We at a time when that. it, that's a, it's movie, a movie stars are right. Are we just think of them in, in terms of fucking Marvel movies, which are never going to give the room for this kind of performance? I was going to say yeah, Marvel movies that, like, do give the room. Marvel movies do give the room. Like we see Kate Blanchett as Hela or something, and it is kind of the same. But in the context of Marvel, it feels flatter, right? It doesn't feel yeah. like really push putting pedal to to metal. Uh, but what what other performances are like this that? Do you feel like things have gone overlooked or maybe we're making a shift or is only is Ridley Scott the only one who's capable of, of zhuzhing it up in movies? I feel like last duel, Ben Affleck got his moment in a similar way, but no one saw the movie. So it's kind of going overlooked. Yeah, I mean, Ben Affleck brings a not entirely dissimilar energy, but obviously in such a small role. I mean, he has to in order to, uh, you know, have his memory sort of cast over the entire film, even though he's only in it for 10 minutes. But um, yeah, I mean, is that kind of performance going to survive Ridley Scott on big screens? It's going to continue without him. Um, I don't know, but I think that Lady Gaga makes it seem possible. I mean, I think that I, I am... I, I'm sure that she could play a more reserved. Do you think it's a trade of biopic background if she wanted to? Do you think it's like this is Jessica no, Chastain I mean, she and did Tammy Faye? You think this performance is like her in Starsborn? You think she's kind of in the same mode? I wouldn't say it's necessarily the same mode, but it has the same force of will behind it. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, I mean, I actually still have not seen the uh, the Tammy Baker movie, uh, but. Um, and I, you could argue, I guess, that like you know, to think of her co-star in that movie, that uh, Andrew Garfield's performance in Tick, Tick, Boom has that energy to it, although it's so diluted by musical theater or contained within musical theater that it's hard to say. But uh, I just, I just think that like we, in this memification of culture right now, are so quick to distill that anything that is identifiably readable, that is big and broad, that you can put into a gif that makes you feel like that gif has or gif that makes you feel like that gif has sound because it's so expressive um that that is too big and is um and and obviously we're not living in a subtle age of movie going to correspond with that but there is sort of a feeling that anything big is bad and right like pacino is the butt of jokes at this point except right if and you Jared go back Lee, I mean, to Jared his Lee movies where he's big and and brassy they're fun. They're great. I mean, they are well, legendary. But the pictures got small, right? I mean, like the movies in which he's even something like Scent of a Woman, which is not one of the worst movies that he was that big in, um, but it was sort of the start of the run where he was so over the top. You know, the movies weren't able to uh, hold up the weight of the hmm. hamming that he was doing. Um, and House of Gucci, I think, can. And Lady Gaga is able to really give it a solid foundation that almost no other actor alive could. But... Were you were you pro Jared, Jared Leto, Leto in Little yeah, Things? Yeah, I think Jared Leto is like also very big, and Jared Leto brings so much baggage into this movie, <laughs> and I understand Probably that. Literally. And I, um, yes, I'm you know hundreds of pounds of prosthetics that he travels with everywhere it goes. But uh, <laughs> I, I uh, have been very critical of his performances in the past. Um, but I think it works for this movie because Ridley Scott gives it the space too, and. I think his big, I like, I thought he was one of the best supporting actors of the year. Um, I really loved his performance and uh, found a real heart to it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I think that there's room for these, these bigger and brassier and go for broke performances that are done by people who know what they're doing. 
Um, and that just because you can see them from outer space isn't necessarily a reason. Isn't this why Nick Cage take is them out flourishing? Like the, you know, like, it's time to take out the trash. The Nick Cage, Nick Cage is having a comeback this year. Nick it's Cage Nick just Cage booked a, a Dracula movie with a studio, his first studio movie in ages. But Nick Cage, everyone, <laughs> everyone wants to be Nick Cage. Yeah, I mean, it's why Nick Cage looks doubly ridiculous when he does tax shelter movies in you know Bucharest. But it's why when he does Mandy which is a movie with real artistic intent behind it, you're like, holy shit, he's one of our best performers. And it's why he's able to capture your attention and draw it in as, as compellingly as he does in Pig, even though that performance is um, you know, so implosive. So, yeah, I mean, I think having that, that arrow in your quiver is, is important and valuable. And um, as long as our actors are, you know, the Jeremy Strong profile that just came out of like, succession... Right. I mean, there's been so much interesting debate on the internet about whether it's tragic, whether he comes off like a huge asshole, whether he's self-important, if there's value in his pretentiousness. And it's like, I mean, those are all really interesting conversations. Um, and I've been pleased in the first 24 hours of the discourse about how nuanced it is. But I also feel like uh, the fact that that he's able to, I don't know, it's something to be appreciated in a way, you know, as, like, as long as he's not terrorizing anybody. I mean, Jared Leto sending like live snakes to his co-stars and the uh, fucking like Suicide Squad or whatever pig? he did. Whatever. It's too much. But this is, uh, um, I'm not, this is not in defense for like, you know, psychotic method acting that it defies method acting. That's like not method acting. It's like a parody of method acting. But um, it is just to say that, you know, the performers who are not as embarrassed about showing their, their uh, showing themselves, you know, like, yeah. rolling their sleeves up on screen as we are on the internet are to be celebrated. Nick Cage calls it Baroque acting. And I think in this era of, of like one note blockbusters, when, when the spectacle can be performance, when can be people stretching themselves and showing us something that we could never see in real life. Like, yes, yeah, special effects do that too. But the real, let me quote a great New York movie guru and say the real special oh, effects really. were, um, art and humanity uh and what people wow. can do on screen right am i right mm. hey <laughs> yeah. I picture it. It's Monday on a night in New York. It's cold. And I walk into a movie theater that's full of people. And I'm with David Ehrlich. You know who's saving a seat for us across the theater? Matt Patches. And we find him and he waves across the theater. And David takes a look at where Patches is sitting and says, absolutely not. And walks away. (laughs) I mean, if you guys guys saw where Matt Patches was sitting on one of those movie theaters that has a, a very long middle row. But the then these two wings on either side, they're like three seats wide and tucked in the corner. Wow, where your sight totally lines wrong. Are like half the fucking Katie, screen. Stand up uh, for our side <laughs> row here. It was I not mean, that severe. It was not that bad. It was not the theater was not especially like well graded. Like the tall dudes in front of me, their heads were in front of me. That was going to happen no matter where you sat. Yeah, this was not yeah, stadium I, seating, I, but this was not severe sideline action. I totally disagree. Some, some inside baseball is that while I, like most sane people, like to sit in the middle towards the front of the theater. I do too. Not in the very I front. I do too. But uh, 
Um, I know a surprising number of film critics, film reporters, uh, people that live among us like normal human beings uh, who like to sit in the rear of the theater <laughs> like they're watching fucking television or off to the side. It makes no sense. They are psychotic. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, and I didn't me. realize that you're, Matt Patches You're crazy. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, don't know. I, I mean, there's... There's a difference between watching Godzilla versus Kong and wanting to turn your neck and wanting to turn your neck, you know? No. Anyway, what are we talking about? Katie, what movie were you seeing? What were we seeing? (laughs) (laughs) So fucking West Side Story. And I thought the movie was a terrible idea. Apparently, even Tony Kushner thought it was a terrible idea because uh, in the profile of him in the Times, he says he went home after meeting with Spielberg and said he's lost his mind. He wants to do West Side Story. And then, much to my surprise, I enjoyed West Side Story so much and i was sitting so with patches much. as he like giggled at as well oh, yeah. singing maria and scattering a big flock of pigeons everywhere um and i felt some restlessness in the theater as the second act began which takes a long time as it does in the original movie um but i have only become more fond of it since i got out of it and i yeah, uh, forgot really all the happy- bad parts yeah <laughs> fine. that's like uh it's like childbirth it's like anything else in life um and then i was so gratified that dave enjoyed it too many thousands of miles away it wasn't just that you know thing where you're like oh well everyone at the the first screening loved it uh dave you liked it too i did there's one problem with it and i think it's a big problem but outside of that problem person uh performance i think it, it makes like your some really smart choices in adaptation but doesn't go uh too far and is just uh, Steven Spielberg fucking shooting dance fighting like you want dance fighting to be shot. It feels like a classic musical, but never am I, uh, you know, feeling like I'm getting bored for like a classical musical moment, you know, like even uh, when there's lots of cast members on screen and they're doing basically a theatrical performance like Officer Krupke, uh, there's a you know cinematic energy to it and like i i think it's maybe because steven spielberg produces a lot of stuff and is a man about hollywood and is a name that could make things get done tiny tune adventures but animaniacs yeah i just occasionally forget <laughs> all that the he's classics just- that you associate with steven spielberg <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well he's just he's he's a good director and occasionally you know there's a bfg that makes you kind of forget that that's the truth but when it's something this as confident as west side story plays uh, even the thing I don't like with this is Ansel Elgort at the center of it uh, is a confident step. And I think like even the movie kind of shies away from him in a way that um, uh, allows him to present better. So uh, I Can think you it's expand just, on, uh, on ant- your antipathy towards Ansel Elgort. Is it just because of his scandal or is it because of his? No, I'd actually forgotten about, about the scandal. Face. It's about his dumb face. Yeah, dumb uh, face. It's about how he- he doesn't want to move his dumb face and he's a good dancer when it's a weird to cast him as a character and then put his first like dance number basically on like a bell from Sleeping Beauty sliding ladder. And that's the extent that he gets to do. <laughs> and then his next his next big number, he scatters some pigeons. Uh-huh. Great. But his next big number, he's just climbing. And I'm like, climbing, also not dancing. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't da- dance a lot. Like it's not written in for I know, the show. I know. Yeah, okay, okay, sorry. I sorry. know. And so they add him into cool, which is when he finally starts to like, you know, kick the great kick his rethinking of that number. I mean, great. a very yeah, so engaging we, fight. And that's great. And it's just an hour and a half into the movie. And at that point, yeah. I'm like, this guy had, needs to move his face. And then, then 
like they have to like beat a new expression into his face for the second part, <laughs> which is good. They give him a little prosthetic to give him an eye down. And then he gets like the news. The I mean, everybody knows William Shakespeare. So like he gets the news that his lover is apparently dead. And his reaction is so weird. They make him immediately back into a like shaft of light of, of shadow. Yeah, no, it, it, like, it so does feel like they are cutting around him in that scene in particular. Yeah, no one, no one yeah, can, no mean, one can I, play I, that level of emotion. He's the, the ugliest. Except that face. moments <laughs> later, Maria, who is Rachel Zegler, oh, we'll who we no, can talk we'll, about. This is their first yeah, movie. I mean, we all remember later. Natalie Wood in the original. Like that's a big emotional breakdown scene at your lover being dead, and she nails Natalie it. Natalie, who in the what? Exactly. Good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that for, for me, you know, to go back to what Steven, oh, what Steven, what uh, Dave was about saying Steven. about Steven Spielberg is that, you know, the argument that I made in my review is that Steven Spielberg has been rehearsing uh, for a musical for 50 years now, um, that every movie he makes in one sense or another is shot like a musical. Uh, and hmm. that includes the films of his, like, what do you think know, is his most something. musical movie? Before this, uh, off the top of my head, I would have to go with, with something like The Adventures of Tintin or Catch Me If You oh, Can. Oh, I was going to say Catch Me If You Can, which became Catch a Me musical. If you can was adap- Catch Me If You Can was adapted into a terrible musical, but The Color Purple, which is not the kind of movie that one would oh. assume would make good fodder for a musical, was so virtuosic in its camera movement that it was adapted into, it made into a musical, inspired a musical, uh, and that musical was fantastic. And so, um, and I would argue and may have on this podcast, and it's uh, something that I've been wrestling with for decades now that, um, and the Jewish community as a whole has been that even Schindler's List has drawn fire for um, its, the musicality of its camera work of aestheticizing an atrocity in the way that it does and turning the Holocaust into entertainment. I tend to fall down on the pro side of that movie but um let's not there, forget the even, um the musical number that opens um shit the second Schindler's list yes oh. <laughs> Schindler's list well no uh, but i mean like in in all, in all seriousness without being glib you could say that the liquidation of the ghetto sequence in Schindler's list has a i mean there's even a wonky piano that is woven into it has the kind of musicality of a Vincenzo Minnelli number and it is you know put in in the service of um, the orchestration of the da- of the liquidation and the genocide of of people of a neighborhood, um, but I think to some eyes it, it felt so slick and so mm. you know not far enough removed from classic Hollywood film vernacular that it felt problematic. And this is something that um, they teach you know courses on a college. I mean, it's a very involved conversation, but there is a musicality to all of Steven Spielberg's filmmaking. It was just a matter of time. It almost felt redundant to actually make a musical because. Feels like he's made some money, and so when you see a number like "Cool," which is just outstanding, um, and feels you know like it has more in common with "Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon" than it does uh, a number of you know like I don't know even something like uh, "Tick Tick Boom" or or sure. um, or you know, the other musicals this year in the Heights, um, which I actually really love. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like there's such a great sense of kinetic movement of fluidity. It, it's you see in the beginning, you know, the, the iconic opening segment of the movie version of West Side Story. What are they going to do with that? You know, and they, they find ways to judge it up and, and to make it fresh and alive. And they don't have to overly modernize it because the movement feels so vital that. Yeah, it's got you, new you tra- choreography like um, with Jerome Robbins is kind of incorporated, but from Justin Peck, who is a big deal choreographer for reasons I do not have handy. But people who know dance know who he is. Um, and it feels like a really fascinating combination. Yeah, he also worked in the film space. Uh, I mean, there's a documentary about him, but he also worked on Black Swan. We go back a, a, a little bit here and talk 
I mean, one one thing that stood out to me, I'm, I'm in the good, not great category on West Side Story. Me Maybe too. we can get a little more into what that means. But I think what's interesting is how they're reframing it, how for me, this is a Tony Kushner movie more than a Spielberg movie. I've seen a lot of mm-hmm. people talk about that. This is one, maybe one of Spielberg's best movies. I would totally disagree. I think he's totally in service to everyone else uh, from the original 1957 stage team of Jerome Robbins and Sondheim and Bernstein and, and Arthur Lorenzi. It's just like this is him being a theater and director Kaminsky. and yeah, and coming in and 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 Tony Kushner getting to do something pretty daring here, which is rethink it. Um, and Katie, I think you probably have the greatest sense of of the original show. Um, but like, you know, the 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 musical is still it's the Jets. It's the shark. It's 1950s New York and they hate each other and they're trying to figure that out. And there's a romance brewing. Um, but the, the movie does take steps to be different, to change what maybe wasn't working with the show. It's funny. I think Sondheim, even before he passed a, a few weeks ago, was saying that he thought there were flaws in West Side Story. That this was not his favorite work of his and that he might do things differently. And I think the stage show has issues and the original movie has issues and that this movie has issues that Kushner is trying to rework. I don't know if we feel like it's spoilers. It's funny when we when we saw the movie, we got a little paper from Disney that said, please do not spoil anything from West Side Story. In, a movie in that fairness, has been 60 years, but there, ha- there fairness, are changes. Disney Disney includes that boilerplate and has flashbacks on every single movie they put but out. But it was yes, still but hilarious. But it's very funny. It makes a little more sense than West Side Story. <laughs> but I also agree that there are things you can spoil from this. I think there's no need for us to go. No, I, I don't think we have to go. get too into it. But what, what do you make of, of like how Kusher's approaching? I think one thing that stood out to me is that I don't really get, I, I went into the movie wondering why we were making West Side Story again and if there was something contemporary that informed it. I don't really think for me there was. Like, I don't. I don't think I, anything. I'll agree with that, but I do think he's taking like dramaturg, dramaturgical, like a, a knife to this and and trying to make it work better, which I find interesting. It it is like a like a film revival in the sense because yeah, it's being pulled from all like the previous uh, iterations, but it's like all the work was done. Uh, I think with pretty much within the bounds of the book like realistically you're not going to see like a bunch of huge changes um and they were all they're all done to like sort of the deepen the understanding of character and place it, you're right that it's not done I, d- I don't think there's a reason for this west side story now i think it's just a performance at that level that if this were a revival in a theater you'd go see it if it's a steven spielberg musical go see it and it performs at that level and i think it delivers at that level it did it like fundamentally make west side story a post-pandemic pay- tale like absolutely well not. yeah they made it in like 2019 or whatever like this was made well yeah. before the pandemic or even cryptocurrency or the internet it's like it's it's very much still <laughs> rooted in the exact same i really needed you know, bernardo yeah, tony's not mining <laughs> bitcoin enough in yeah. this movie. for me personally yeah riff is like hey just tony just take the sack of cash and put it into a doge <laughs> hey <laughs> you want an nft tony <laughs> when We're you're gonna get a the doge NFT. you're a doge all right wait wait here's um, here's the thing that i would say that i'd like and to say this out loud makes it sound like it's going to be horrible and i promise it's not but it deals with the cops and it deals with the jets as avatars of white grievance in a way that I thought did feel relevant to today. And there's a moment early on where 
you get a uh, Lieutenant Shrank, who's played by Corey Stoll, who's the the greatest. Um, he's kind of like lecturing the sharks and then lecturing the jets. And you're like, okay, oh God, are they going to underline this like way too hard? And then it leaves it after that. But it's like very clear that the jets like well, aren't just like, like they're racist, but it's like, well, we got nothing left. Like they're taking the last thing. And it just so clearly echoes the like Trump voters that we talk about right now. I mean, like it's, it's such a clear to line. The- it's sympathetic to the origins of their inherited racism. Yes. Um, and them as sort of, you know, these people who this legacy has been bequeathed to them because in the neighborhood in which the movie takes place, uh, they're all the other communities, you know, as Robert Moses came in to demolish it and make room for Lincoln, Lincoln Center, um, which is something that, you know, you couldn't really touch on in the first movie when it was made. It was still happening. Um, and this movie addresses in the very first shot and is already sort of a clever nod to the fact that or, or justification for why it exists. But, uh, you know, there, every other community left and, and, and climbed up the, the ladder and moved away. But um, their parents sort of dug their heels in the ground and stayed there and they were born into the rubble of it all. And in the middle of it, you have these other communities who are coming in the boom after World War II and uh, coming up and, and coming into their neighborhood. And their neighborhood is really the space of it is all they have left. And so there's this sort of natural animosity. It doesn't let them off the hook by any stretch of the imagination for it. But the fact that I think the fact that Rift, who's played so well by oh. Mike Faced, is such a true believer, so good, actually makes him as a character not obviously for his virtues, but makes him more endearing because it's not a put on like he he doesn't think of himself as a bad person. You know, he's really trying to defend the last thing that he has, and I think that um, the movie is is definitely more sympathetic towards the sharks as it should be. Um, not that. Bernardo doesn't acknowledge that it's stupid that they're fighting, but you know, it's more sympathetic, but you know, what's interesting. So uh, the night after Katie and I saw West side story, (laughs) we went to see Caroline or change Tony Kushner's musical about the South and centered on a, on a black maid living with a, a Jewish family in the South. And one of my takeaways there was, I mean, it's a really profound, lovely musical, but I think Tony Kushner has a greater sensitivity or greater depth to exploring the Jewish experience than the black maid in that show um, for maybe obvious reasons. And I think here he has a greater depth and understanding of the Jets than he does of the Sharks. And they they're more complicated. They're more interesting questions being asked. And in the Sharks, I don't I know if I agree a with little that. more superficial. And luckily, the show works on its own. I mean, the characters are still interesting. I think the my big takeaway about West Side Story, as done by Steven Spielberg, is, damn, this is a really good musical. You can't fuck it up that yeah, much. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg I th- I does think a like good job. But like the greater a, yeah. my the greater sort of organizing principle for me is just that they move the story halfway down the field into the real world. It's not mm-hmm. all the way you know there in realism, but they are contextualizing it and sewing it into the fabric of reality in a way that the musical and the original movie or that was made after the musical uh, did not. And that, you know, brings a much greater humanity to it. But I think you're, I agree with both you guys in that like the characterizations of the sharks are not as vivid. I don't think it gets much deeper than Bernardo being like, you know, I mean, he has so many new interesting elements to this character. He's a boxer and this and that, but like, uh, and the relationship, the dynamic between he and Maria is really interesting. And they discover so much through casting. It's like, Oh, not everyone from, Rico may look the same or like come from the same place and I feel like just by having different types of actors and this full spectrum of people like you you do understand that this is a vivid community but again the characterizations only go so Although, far but I think I presenting that as some kind of grand discovery suggests the limits sure. of uh, 
what this movie was capable I mean, of. But, but I think Anita does a lot of the tipping and the balance oh, there. Like she is maybe the richest character in the whole thing. Like Anita and Ariana DeBose is uh, in so she's, incredible. She's incredible. In and her character, I think, carries a lot of the weight of what the like the sharks are fighting for overall. Um, the one thing I want to say about tipping towards reality before I slip away from it, in that opening sequence between the Jets and the Sharks, that like famous fight scene in the original, the choreography, it's very like balletic and dancey. And like, that's, you know, part of the, the heightened reality and the violence is really real. Like you feel it like the first time someone swings a paint can at somebody's head. And I thought that was a really impressive way of just like establishing the stakes, saying how they were going to be different early on and then making you feel like what they're both fighting for really. And how like what an awful waste rubble. of yeah rubble and like, you know, fucking up their lives for no good reason, which is what uh, Lieutenant Shrink tells them. Basically, I mean, the, the stakes of what they're fighting for have already been lost. Yeah. I mean, like they they are st- fighting in the ruins for the moment the movie. Began. Well, and it's like that that cartoon going around of like a you know a aristocrat sitting at a table with like an immigrant and a white guy and being like, oh look, that immigrant's trying to take your one cookie, and like the rich guy has like a hundred cookies. Um, it's the, mm-hmm. the Robert Moses is the actual bad guy, but they are so you know ground under by this system that they left fighting each other instead of the actual villain. Uh, yeah, yep. I mean, I and the movie's sorry, Dave, like, quick, Ansel Elgort, communicate that with your face. <laughs> his his so throat he, really like trembles in this it movie. Moves, this it moves he's a the lot. only he's the only one doing the vibrato chin, and that's the most motion his face does. It's so <laughs> frustrating. I think that he has a really lovely singing voice, and when he is not made to act, when you're looking at like a still image or a shot where he's just staring off into the distance, he has a sort of mid-century movie star matinee idol appeal um but he is so wooden in this role when during the dramatic scenes of which there are many do you think um, that's a tony not... problem or is it an ansel no. Elgort problem or a tony problem i can't well tell. i think it's both because I, I don't know if there's an actor alive who could have sold <laughs> the the, emo- the movie has an emotional problem in the second half for me i mean it really does and it falls apart for me after the rumble and totally biffs the ending but the wow. the problem for me is that as soon as the rumble happens and I mean, again, this is not really a spoiler. It's there's a rumble, yet, but like there there's a rumble. And then, and then Tony, and someone Marie kills Tybalt Some and people it's going to be bad. Yeah. And, and, be, and really Marie the death is not the spoiler not, here. Other, the, the Kushner no. changes and tweaks, I feel like are the most yeah. The yeah. fun. She has to decide if she's going to stay with, uh, with, with Tony. And, and again, they've met, 24 hours earlier yeah. uh, and all of their scenes together, <laughs> including the really banal date scene at the cloisters, which also didn't work for me. Um, despite Rachel Zegler giving her best. Uh, it, it's just like, there isn't enough runway there to believe the choices that are made. And I think it puts the entire last third of the movie on really slippery ground. And it needs, I, yeah. it needs a bigger performance from him. It needs Andrew Garfield to try to act his way out of like that level of emotion. Mm-hmm. That's what Tony needs. See, I think it's a momentum it problem. So- I actually think it's a dramaturgical issue where it's like they, so they make some choices. I don't know how deep we want to go here, but they change some things around and it kills the momentum of the movie. Like I feel pretty is in this huh. movie at the exact mm. wrong time. I think. No, I like where I feel pretty. And, is. and it kind of fucks up the momentum of the relationship and the escalation of, of, the proceedings and when are we going to talk about Rita Moreno being in this movie and being horrible? Uh, see that being horrible. <laughs> oh, no. oh, okay. I'm sorry. No. You're an angel. So rude. I, Rita Moreno, innocent Rita Moreno, not recognizing as an executive producer of this movie that she 
should be the character, oh, her no. new character of Doc, to sing a certain song that is needed to galvanize the emotional relationship between Tony and Maria at the most crucial moment of the movie. Maybe a little. She's guilty. just in I so mean, much of it. I just like, Tony and Maria. You don't need. You don't need more of those two. You like, need you get to it. care about love. them. They're not going to be the most charismatic characters in the world, them. but you need to care. This was the like one of the only Romeo and Juliet uh, adaptations where, while it was happening, I'm like. These, these guys are too young to be dealing with this shit. I also don't, yeah, I, guess. I actually don't care for uh, newcomer Rachel Zegler in this movie. I'm really on the outside of this one. And, oh, and I know it. I think she's, but yeah. I, I, I turned to Katie after the movie and I was like, are these, are Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler like CG? Are they basically they, well, like Navi, but uh, DH white Billy and- Zane? It's that's Janusz Kaminski's fault. Like they, it looks Maybe very the surreal. The critics organization gave him a cinematography award for this movie. Listen, I don't. We, we don't talk about what happens <laughs> in the room shit. that has been made. Uh, that that is something I've known for a long time and has been reinforced this week uh, thanks to mistakes of people I don't know who. But um, the uh, the look of the movie was was not my favorite. Um, I think Spielberg and Kaminski have made some astoundingly beautiful. Films together, Kaminsky, John Kaminsky is his We need to get past um, CG skies in movies. The, I, yeah, the CG skies, the whole... Trend. There's an unreality to so much of the look of the film where it feels sort of burnished with CG. And that includes... Uh, did not, I did not have that problem with Maria, but I uh, definitely felt it on um, Ansel Elgort's face. He reminded me so much of the CGI young Jeff Bridges from Tron 2.0. I just felt like um, when we were close and, up on Rachel Zegler, she looked like a Bratz figurine or something. I just, it's really unfortunate. Maybe she just I has think the way the that she gigantic is, eyes. I mean, she, she does have gigantic, she does have gigantic eyes. eyes. I really, I think that the camera treats her well and uh, she has the emotion to, to, you know, make that the focal point of what she's doing. But Ansel Elgort is sort of dead behind the eyes here. Um, I'll give her props for like the performance with her and, uh, performance. Her her song with uh, Anita, the Maria Anita moment. No, is really anytime powerful. she's with Anita because she's responding. That's really she's good. a respond, responsive but it's also accent. like yeah, wide accent. shots. I feel like she's just not allowed to do anything as Maria in so much of the movie. And so maybe I'm not taking Rachel Zegler to task. And I look forward to seeing her as Snow White in a Disney sure. uh, photo shoot at some point. But uh, yeah, oh, I just boy. like I cannot. I just don't think Spielberg did her justice with the camera in this movie. It's very strange. Although the scene, the gym, the gym scene where they first like see each that. other and fall in love at first sight is spectacular. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The dance. Yeah. That so I had good. some chi- some chills moments where I'm like, maybe this movie's going to be okay. Every crowd, oh, yeah. every and crowd scene is good. Every crowd ankle scene elbow shows up. I mean, America, America is, is transformative. Wow. It is spectacular. Uh, there are so many numbers like that. They're all in the first 90 minutes of the movie. Um, I really, I really, I mean, Spielberg is, uh, notorious for, for biffing his endings. I have historically not had the problem with them, you know, with the exception of like War of the Worlds that some people have, I think a movie like Munich, Catch Me If You Can, and perfectly, uh, as do some of his older films. Um, I, you know, it's not just the tail end of this movie. The last... 30 minutes oh. and change, I think, are all just There's a mess. so many scenes um, in the last third of this movie where everyone's just standing around in wide shots, and I just feel like... So here's, here's a Galaxy Braid take that might make you scream. Is this movie <laughs> well-directed? Like, I'm not sure yes. it is. I think, I think yes. that the, yes. the choreography is incredible, and I think that all the right. movie kind of... Like, a sequence like America is well-executed. I think 
I kept thinking throughout the movie, man, Spielberg can get the budget to make this movie look amazing and like build sets and put the camera anywhere and light every scene to perfection. But is it well directed? Like, is the camera in the right place at right times? Because you're, when, you're, we come down you're to, the... when we come down to the last third and we're in the interior of Rita Moreno's uh, bodega and we just like are floating through an, another Spielberg long shot where I'm just like, what stage something like make this work. And I, this I is like, you know, I... YouTube reaction video <laughs> shit. Do it like a deep dive. <laughs> Into uh, in front of your Marvel toys wow, about why Steven Spielberg fuck. is actually a <laughs> bad director. I, Spielberg, I love Spielberg. I love Spielberg. I'm just saying, maybe he's not equipped. Maybe the, maybe he's in service to a lot of other people here. And I just felt like the money was doing a lot of the talking in this movie. That is egregious take. I understand. But. Well, I mean, f- first of all, that is a talent of being a director. That's the difference between Steven Spielberg's West Side Story and Colin Trevorrow's West Side Story. Holy which, shit! Fuck that no one. Colin wants Trevorrow's that. Uh, West Side Story was shot in real space. That's the, <laughs> yeah, real space. He wanted to go to space and shoot uh, against the real stars. Practical. But I think that's what well, was just the world I mean, is a star. I mean, it's right there in the lyrics. <laughs> the thing that David was saying about, like, to a certain degree, like Spielberg's movies having like that musical quality, like this. He's also the person that developed like the what we would consider the blockbuster, you know, with with Jaws. And so the idea yeah. that you could marry these two things, yeah, you know, like big bold emotion with long camera takes and whatnot is more leading into something like the Eternals than it's leading into something like licorice pizza. Well, I mean, he would, he got, he would draft that off of, you know, the golden age of Hollywood musicals, Um, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, here's my hot take that I'm going to deliver on my YouTube channel that mercifully doesn't exist. Uh, David Grace Randolph. Jaws is a music. Jaws is a musical. (laughs) (laughs) gonna need a bigger boat 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 Uh, Uh, but it's like you know the Les Mis adaptation where everybody's singing and there's like a lot of close ups and like there's part of you where it's like why are we so close up on this this is not you're misunderstanding the magic between musical and movie this is the magic between musical and movie it I think is very additive to seeing a performance of it and but not added it to the point that I think it's you know the 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 manifesto for how we should move forward. I mean, he killed it century. at the uh, Officer Krupke sequence. Like I, yeah. I loved every angle in that. I loved all the oh, blocking God. and and. Can you guys quickly justify why that number is still in the movie? The Officer Krupke. Like, I don't disagree that it shot well, but I do. That's the thing. It's gonna struggle. be a good YouTube video. But you're right. The moment that's I, com- I struggle to understand why that was not cut. Huh. Uh, you can't lose it. It's it's the part it's the part that is about the generational thing, despite there not actually being parents in the musical. But I like, feel like the, the drama abandoned... is so strong in the way the characters are realized uh, ambiently in other scenes that it feels redundant by the time we get there. But it's a great yeah, I mean, I don't know about I number. Pretty. Also, the fact that they, Riff is in Riff is in it in the movie in the original movie, but isn't in it in this one. And I think that you meet the other jets so that when Riff is spoiler alert no longer in the movie uh you care about them because you, they don't really have you any... don't though no i think you do you don't I care think about that scene they fail. no i mean like you have that scene and it accomplishes none of these things now i'm mad wow. now i'm gonna go on twitter.com and say they should have cut officer krupke all right i mean you you're not necessarily wrong but i also think this movie does a really good job escalating dancing from something that is sort of balletic and fun through a paint can to the head up to dance rape threats where it is you get the message 
Like you get the message that dancing is violence in this musical world, and now we're going to do Romeo and Juliet. I just, I, I just, I think executing that is actually harder than we give it credit for. Like as Katie started this all off with, West Side Story remake West Side Story as a new movie in 2021 is a dumb idea. But yet here we are. It seems like it yeah. was okay. I don't get. Do, Except for do you think Spielberg elbow. doesn't like musicals? Why are there several moments in the in the movie where people like look at those who are singing with like a raised eyebrow? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ansel no. Elgort singing, no. singing through the streets, there's and then there's like a man who gives him a he gives him a weird look, or like he bursts through a, a bunch of pigeons, and the woman trying to feed them is like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And then in Officer Krupp, there's a woman who's looking at them. He's like, why are they singing? Weird, weird. I thought that don't was like musicals. a You Crazy Kids thing. I don't think Steven Spielberg yeah. hates musicals. What is wrong with you? I think it's them like being the like wild ass kids in this uh, community where everyone's kind of looking at them sideways. Yeah, they're also like the gang enforcers. Mm. We're letting we're letting our top 10 of the podcast of the year on Time Magazine go to our head with this running time. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's wrap, it, wrap it up. West Side Story, you're going to be able to see it in theaters in a couple of weeks. Is like it? this week. No, this yeah. week. This week. This week. See it in theaters this week. Go for it. Oh yeah, December before 10th. the Spider Man come for you. Or all of the Spider Man come for you. Uh, that does it for this week's episode of uh, Time Magazine's number four best podcast of 2021. Um, that is our official <laughs> sign up. Now uh, we will be back next week. Uh, should we? Should I update everyone on our schedule now that we finally figured it out? Uh, we're yeah, all our shot. Uh, so yeah, we're next week. We're going to talk about uh, Spider Man and Nightmare Alley and probably other stuff because there's a lot of these out right now and we're all trying to catch up with stuff. And then the week after that, the week of Christmas, we will do our quarter quill. Long promised. It's happening. Uh, we're doing a 2010-2011 flashback talking about 127 hours, limitless, water for elephants, and Super 8. We gave you so much more time <laughs> to catch up along with us uh, and maybe ourselves. Anyway, that will happen. We'll take a week off around the new year and then be back. I will do top 10s in January to give us all time to catch up on some stuff. I hear David's video may also be on around then, so we'll all be on it's, the uh, uh, schedule. Turns out things get harder when you have a small toddler, but who could, it's who could have seen this coming? Um, so anyway, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I am deputy editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, if it's a platform you use. And uh, we have a website, fightingintheworm.com. If, if you read Time's top 10 podcast article and you were like, I got to give Heard this one it? a shot, a successor to <laughs> Roger Ebert's Siskel and Ebert show. Yeah, I got I to gotta listen to this. Well, I hope you made it to the end. Holy shit. We have a lot of other episodes, too. And they're all on fightingintheworm.com. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find me on IndieWire, where I am the film critic, writing about uh, I Don't Look Up this week. The embargo is tomorrow, the day we're recording this. By the time you hear it, Ooh. I'll be on the internet. What'd you think? Um, bad. <laughs> Real bad. <laughs> um, so just don't post this episode before 7 p.m., Tomorrow on Tuesday, uh, December 10th, uh, 7th. Thanks, Dave. Um, 
You can find all of us, more importantly, together on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Go on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We will read it live on the show, even if you are not the chief podcast uh, scientist at Time Magazine. Even if you're just an intern at Time Magazine, we'll read your review on our website, on uh, iTunes. As long as, you know, you say that we're one of the 10 best podcasts of 2021, of course. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. And some good news, breaking news. You can email all of us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Yes. There you can send us international reviews. You can send us thoughts. Uh, it will now go into a bin we could we could all access. Wait, is that thoughts, T-H-O-T-S? You could send whatever type of thoughts you want. Wow. I'll, 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 I'll see some thoughts. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at uh, Vanity Fair where uh, uh, a little old men podcast where we'll be talking more about West Side Story. I'm just going to keep talking about it as long as they'll let me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R where um, you can tell us who you think should have played Tony, which has been a, a hot topic of conversation uh, among people I talk to in real life. Or you can answer this week's like round question, which was... In honor of being the Ricardos, what's the biopic with the best setting? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.